Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Welcome back to church, Bible Center family. Welcome back to church. It's so good to have you here. Those of you who call Bible Center your home, we also want to say welcome to those who may be new to us. If you're joining us today in person, if you're joining us online or on TV for the first time, we like to say that we're a family expecting guests. And so if you came today as a guest or if you're joining us today as a guest, it's our prayer that you will leave as family. I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be down front afterward. Would love to help you connect here in a deeper way. If you take your Bible or Bible app and open with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to dive in in a moment. We're in the middle of a series called Reset. And this morning we're looking at the aspect of relating. Relating. God is inviting us to relate better to the people who are in our lives, to see the people in our lives as a gift and not as just an inconvenience, but as a gift to us uh, for our holiness and for our happiness. So let's go ahead and dive in and read Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4 and we'll go through verse 18. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being." Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Jump down with me to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. Here's today's big idea. Today's big idea is simply this. God designed life to be a team sport, not a solo sport. God designed life to be a team sport, not a solo sport. And so I want to begin today asking, how many of you were able to watch some of the Olympics? Who watched some of the Olympics? All right, most of us. How many of you would care to admit, we already know who you are anyway. How many of you care to admit, I watch most of the Olympics? Anybody like that? All right, three of you. Yeah, yeah. A lot of us wished that we could watch more of the Olympics. One thing that really stuck out to me this year uh, was just how there really are no individual activities. Now, again, most events are individual athletes competing against individual athletes, but to think about how connected the teams are and even how connected the competitors are, that really stuck out to me as, a, as a really a, a symbol or an illustration of the Christian life. God designed life to be a team sport, not a solo sport. This was made very clear in Genesis 2.18. When God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
This statement about it not being good says more about the character of God than it does about Adam's loneliness. This statement about something not being good would have been jarring to the original Hebrew audience. For in chapter 1 of Genesis, seven times God said that his universe was good. And now he's saying something is not good. And it's intended to be jarring for us as well in 2021. Now to be clear, as the Bible unfolds, we see that God isn't talking about being alone in the marital or single sense. For we remember that Jesus was single. We remember that the Apostle Paul was single. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, speaking from opinion, he even said in the book that it was his personal opinion. He wasn't speaking with apostolic authority. But he wished that everybody could be single like him because he said it gives you a certain flexibility to serve in ministry, to serve God and others. But what God is referencing here is that it's not good for us to be alone in life. It's not good for us to be lone ranger Christians. From the very beginning, it has always been God's design that we, as his image bearers, you know, spend life, relate, love, receive love from other image bearers in this life. God created it to be a team sport not a solo sport. Now, again, when we think about Genesis 2.18, about it's not good for man to be alone, our minds go back to the character of God himself. How that God, being Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, related to one another for all of eternity, and eternity past, God the Father lived in community with the Son and with the Spirit. You can read more about that in John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. But we, since we are not Trinity, we are not triunity, we need others around us to live out that image of God, to express that unity. And so today's message is important for a lot of reasons. I've already given you the spiritual reason that today's message is important. But today's message is important for a very practical reason. All of us get lonely at some time or another. Even the biggest introvert in this room, and as an introvert, I can relate. Those of us who would call ourselves that still have to admit there are times when even we feel alone. Today's message is important psychologically. Psychologists and therapists tell us that all of our knowing is interpreted or interpersonal and that it emerges from a soul that is structured relationally. We cannot fully know well without being in connection and in communion. And then, of course, there's another practical reason. We cannot reach our full potential in relationships without understanding the value of relationships. And so God designed life to be a team sport not a solo sport. What I want to do in the rest of our time is get really practical. I want to give you four ways to cultivate the relationships in your life. And so if you're taking notes, today's message follows these four points. We're going to cultivate our relationships with God, our relationship with our spouse if you're married, our relationship with our children if you have children, and our relationship with one another in the family of God. We all like to call that around here our spiritual friends. 
And so feel free to follow along. These notes are also in the app. Number one, cultivate your relationship with Jesus. Cultivate your relationship with Jesus. I intentionally use the word cultivate because we cannot produce a relationship with Jesus. We can't even grow our relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, we cultivate it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we sow, we water, but God gives the increase. So cultivate your relationship with Jesus. Here's a suggestion. I have a few practical suggestions today. Remember, Jesus saves in an instant. However, Jesus transforms over time. Now, if you've been around our church for any length of time, you'll recognize Jesus saves and Jesus transforms. We like to say the gospel can be summarized in 10 words. God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, and God restores. We know that Jesus can save because he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that his ascension back into heaven was evidence that he is king. And so there comes a moment in our lives when we submit to Jesus as king. For some of us, it was in the form of a prayer. We expressed our faith in prayer. Lord, I give you my life. I commit my life to you. I choose to follow you. I believe the gospel. That happened in an instant. But it's super important for us as we're cultivating our relationship with Jesus to remember that transformation happens over time. No gardener goes to his or her garden and expects to reap a harvest day one, for we all know that this is something that happens over time. Another suggestion that may help you practically is to let him speak to you every day in his word. Let him speak to you every day. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. In John 17.17, 17, Jesus said, transform them, sanctify them through thy word, for thy word is truth. So however you choose to do it, for me, when I was a new Christian, one of my pastors suggested that I begin in the book of Psalms. And back in those days, years and years and years ago, we had hard copies of the Bible, and you could write in your Bible. And we would, I would put a check mark beside the psalm after I read a particular psalm. And then the next day, I would read another psalm and put a check mark beside that psalm. And then after I finished 150 psalms, I said, what should I do now? And he said, well, start in the New Testament and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again. And so I would read a few chapters of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. And after I'd done that for a while, I wanted to go on. So he said, go on, read through the New Testament. And now some decades later after following Jesus, I'm still just reading through the Bible for my time with Jesus. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing flashy. But we let God's words speak to our hearts every single day. Another suggestion meditate and contemplate on his word every day. The promise of blessing in the Bible is not just to read it, but actually the greater promise is to meditate, to contemplate on it. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
And so when you read your chapter or you read your section, you try to think of, this, let the Spirit of God bring out one thought, illuminate one thought that you can meditate on and think about and, and, and mull over throughout the day. Don't just search the Scriptures, but let the Scriptures search you. We conservative evangelicals are great at searching the Scriptures, but I'm not sure that we're as great as letting the Scriptures search us. Another suggestion, share your heart with him every day in prayer. Share your heart with him every day in prayer. We communicate with the people we love. We talk to them. We share our burdens. We ask for help. And prayer works in a very similar way. God speaks to us from his word, and we speak to him in prayer. And then one final suggestion under our relationship with Jesus. Confess your sins every day. Confess your sins every day. We all have them. And we all need confession. The gist of 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9, the theological gist of it, in context with the rest of the book, could be phrased like this. The fact that we confess our sin is evidence that the faithful and righteous one has already forgiven us our sin and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. In other words, true Christians confess their sins. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not confess their sin. Early in my Christian life, I had a pastor encourage me to, whenever I was going to bed at night, when I lay my head on my pillow, the last thing that I should say is, Lord, how have I sinned against you? To take that moment just to confess any sin that the Lord brings back to mind. Now, of course, we sin every day and don't even know it. So it's not like our forgiveness is based upon a ledger-for-ledger ledger confession. Again, the whole promise of 1 John is that our sins have already been forgiven. But an evidence of that is that we want to acknowledge, agree with God when we sin. This is one of the reasons we're doing communion now every week. Communion, among other things, it's not just for confession, but communion weekly reminds us that we as the people of God come together corporately to confess our sin. Confession has kind of fallen out of, uh, it's no longer in vogue to talk about confession in some evangelical circles. Well, we want to push against that because if you're like me, I need daily confession. And then weekly confession of our sin around communion just reminds us that we, the people of God, are in this together. Cultivate your relationship with Jesus. Number two, cultivate your relationship with your spouse. Cultivate your relationship with your spouse. Now, for those of you who may not be married, I would ask you to take this time and even, even not only learn from God's Word, but also to pray for those in our church who are married. Uh, we're not just a church for married men and women. We're a church for all people. Uh, but I would ask you to pray for our couples. We want a church filled with strong marriages. I read this week, this is from several years ago, in the same month that Sandra Bullock won an Academy Award for Best Actress, came the news that her then-husband was a serial adulterer. Reflecting on this, the New York Times columnist David Brooks asked, would you take that deal? He's asking us. 
Would you take that deal? Would you exchange a tremendous professional triumph for severe personal blow? Now, we don't like such questions because although we would never verbalize a yes, sometimes our calendars, our schedules, our lifestyles say it for us. And so here are a few suggestions to cultivate your relationship with your spouse. Number one, grow in Jesus together. Grow in Jesus together. You say, how do you grow in Jesus together? Well, you can look back in the notes at everything I just talked about, about cultivating your relationship with Jesus and make that a part of your relationship together. What you're reading in God's Word, discuss it with one another. What are you praying about? Try to pray together once per day. How are you growing in the Lord? Confessing your sin to one another. I guarantee it your spouse already knows. So you might as well just go ahead and confess it to them as well, asking for the Lord's help and asking them for their help. Another suggestion, try to be best friends above all else. Try to be best friends above all else. Several years ago when we went through the Song of Solomon series, which I pray we never have to do again in this church, but when we went through the Song of Solomon series several years ago, one thing that stuck out to me was the, the, the connection of the friendship with Solomon and his bride. And these principles are repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs of how important it is to be close friends with the one you love. Now, I understand in some circles there is this teaching that, you know, ladies, your best friend in life should not be your husband, and men, your best friend in life should not be your spouse. I, I hear that. I understand that. I have just never seen it end well. I've just never seen it end well. And so what I would encourage you to do is, yes, have best friends, but may there not be any relationship in your life that pulls you away from your love for your spouse. Sarah and I met in the 10th grade, which is something we don't try to talk about very much around our children, um, but we, we met in the 10th grade, and uh, I didn't like her. She didn't like me. Now, she thought I was loud and obnoxious, and I thought she was just another spoiled Christian schoolgirl, and, and we didn't really like one another. And then something happened our 11th grade year. Something changed. She was dating this particular boy, and uh, he was a buddy of mine. We played basketball together. We had both transferred from public school to Crosslands Christian School the same year. And he came to me for spiritual advice. You know, imagine two 11th graders or 11th and 12th graders asking for spiritual advice. But he's like, hey, I got some advice. I'm having a hard time focusing on Jesus. What should I do? And I knew this was my opportunity. And so I said, well, Mike, really, buddy, you really just need to take your eyes off of Sarah for a while and focus on Jesus. And so he did, and they broke up. Three weeks later, we went on our first date, and uh, his mom was in the service at 845 right here in this church, which made it really awkward to use that illustration. Uh, but we're best friends. We, we have our shows. We have our, the things that we love to do together. Another suggestion, take time to talk often about anything and everything. Talk about your kids, talk about your challenges, talk about your successes, talk about your day, talk about your failures. Nothing is off limits. Nothing. You are one flesh in Jesus. For us at our house, our time when we talk each day is right after dinner. That's the best time. In true confession, we tried before dinner 
and my wife says I'm kind of grumpy before dinner. I'm not very spiritual. So after dinner, magically, I'm filled with the Spirit, and I'm ready to talk. Whatever that time is for you. It doesn't have to be long, just a few minutes a day. Next, always speak respectfully to and about one another. The most important words in any marriage are please and thank you, I'm sorry, forgive me, I forgive you, I love you. We try to say them over and over again. It's really easy for us, the longer we're married, to just see this other person in our house as like a partner in the marriage business, right? This is just that old woman, that old man, whatever. But God reminds us that they are children of God too. That's a daughter of God you're married to. That's a son of God to whom you're married. And so we try to be, I would encourage you, be respectful to the person to whom you're married. Lastly, find out what the other needs and try your best to help meet that need. Find out what the other needs. A number of years ago, Sarah and I, in counseling, were discussing uh, this very issue. Like, how do, how do I find out what this bride needs? How does she find out what I need? And the advice we got was brilliant. You're going to want to write this down. And it's deep, it's complex, but you're going to want to write this down. The advice we got was simply this. Ask. That's it. Just ask. Hey, hey what do you need? How can I serve you better? What do you need today? Are you good? Is there anything I can do for you? Those types of questions helped continue to transform our marriage. Men, you may find if you ask your wife that question that she needs more date nights. She might need two to three times as much talking with you as you think you need. You might find that she has a decision she could use your opinion on. She might just need to hold your hand more. Ladies, if you ask your husband that question, you may find that he needs more physical intimacy. If he's like most men, he may need it two to three times as much as you do. Fellas, you can thank me later for adding that in the sermon. But over the years in pastoral counseling, that particular question, I have watched it begin to transform marriages. You don't come into it saying, I'm going to tell you all that you owe me. But you say, hey, I'm, I want to know how can I serve you in a greater way. And when both parties are trying to do that, it's transformative as you're trying to outdo one another with love and good works. I've seen answers to that question in pastoral counseling be everything from, honey, it would greatly help me if you would stop throwing your dirty laundry in the floor beside the hamper. If I've ever had almost murder happen in my office, it's been when that question is asked and that answer is given. So don't do that. I've also heard some say, hey, please stop being so vulgar. Please help with the kids more. Help me more. Please. I even had one instance. Please brush your teeth before going to bed. I'm just going to leave it at that. But this past week, I had a conversation with uh, one of our dear saints, Hazel Hess, who was married to her husband for 66 years. Her and Kenneth were married for 66 years, and about five or six years ago, Kenneth went on to heaven. And Hazel, she's talking about stepping into the presence of Jesus whenever that, that time comes for her. She just talks about, yes, I look forward to seeing Jesus, but I'm also look forward to seeing Kenneth. 
And it just reminded me how we're so thankful, we're so blessed here at Bible Center to be multi-generational. We're not just a young church, we're not just an old church, but we, we have this, these multi-generational multi, uh, examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus together. And so thank you for those of you who provided the rest of us with these examples. Cultivate your relationship with your spouse. The third of our four main ideas is this. Cultivate your relationship with your children. Cultivate your relationship with your children. If living too fast and too busily pushes our spouses down the priority list, it usually drops our children off the priority list altogether. So here are several ways to cultivate your relationship with your kids. First of all, show them you need Jesus and his gospel as much as they do. This applies to those of us with adult children as well as little kids. We're, we show them we need the same grace that they need. The 10 gospel words that I said a moment ago actually are an answer for a lot of the questions your children might bring. For instance, when they say, hey, mommy, why is this river here? Why is the ocean here? You can point them back to God creates. God creates. That's actually part of the gospel. God creates. This past week, Caden, out of the blue, asked me, daddy, where does cancer come from? Why is there cancer? And this is what our nine-year-olds are thinking through. And so I'm going through the Rolodex in my mind and was able to, with, with God's grace, to say, hey, buddy, sin breaks. The sin has broken this earth, Adam and Eve's sin. And from there, the entire earth just groans with the pain of sin. Maybe questions like, hey, why do we go to church? You can give them your story, share your story of what Jesus has done for you about how Jesus saves. Show them you need the gospel. Next, sincerely apologize when you sin against them or their spouse. The greatest thing you can ever do for your kids is repent of your sin in front of them. I've never regretted saying I'm sorry to my children, and I've said it too many times to count. But repentance is the way we show them that we are on the journey too. Another suggestion is this. Try to keep rules to a minimum and grace to a maximum. Cheer. I found that when my children were young, they thrived more when we laid out consistent rules and boundaries for them. Now, when our kids were little, we only had three rules. Always obey, never lie, always love others. Always obey, never lie, and love others. Now, the neat thing about those three rules is you could apply them to any situation. But it was really cool to tell them, you only got three rules. Always obey, never lie love others. But as we, as we grew and are still growing in our relationship to our children, and we don't have this thing figured out, I remember the words of James Dobson who said, say yes as much as possible. Say no only when you have to. It was 2007, and Sarah and I had just started attending Bible Center. It was the summer of 2007. We were part of another ministry, and any chance we could to sneak away and come to this church, we would come here because of what it meant to us, what it meant to our kids who were really little at the time. And as we started coming, evidently one of the Sunday school teachers of our children had seen me not react all that graciously to my daughters. 
Evidently, I wasn't as patient as I should have been. And his name was Mark. I'll never forget it. He moved to Tennessee, and he and his wife were involved in kids' men for years. But one day after I'd been here for several months, Mark approached me after a service, and he said, Hey, Matt, I have a book for you. The title of it was Families Where Grace is in Place. Families Where Grace is in Place. And he said, I've got a book for you. He goes, I know you love to read. I think this will help you as you raise your daughters. And that was like the nicest rebuke I think I've ever received. Essentially, he was saying, hey, you're being a knucklehead to your girls. And this is a, a way to infuse grace into your life. That really, really helped me. And so we want to continue together to keep rules to a minimum and grace to a maximum. Next, encourage them as much as possible and then encourage them some more. Cheer for your kids. Root for your kids. Yes, root for them on the court. We all do that. But encourage them in their faith. Encourage them in their passions. Encourage them in their schoolwork. Encourage them in their appearance. Encourage them in their friendships. This past week, Pastor John who seldom does this, but Pastor John just felt like there was an area where I could grow in support of one of my children. And so in his office, you know, kind of being very pastoral, he's like, man, let me challenge your thinking in an area. And it like really opened my eyes. I'm like, holy cow, I'm not supporting one of my children as I should. And so let's, let's do that. Let's encourage, let's love them. Let's support them. And then the last suggestion for our children is this, never stop praying for them. If there's life, there's hope. Never stop praying for them. If there's life, there's hope. One of the hardest things to do is set with a mom or dad when they're praying for their child who's strayed from Jesus. And you can just see the pain. You can feel the pain, and there's really nothing to say, right? You can just pray, you can cry, you can be there. There's really nothing to say. But let's remember where there's life, there is hope. In a moment, I want to show you a picture. I'm not going to show it yet, but in a moment, I want to show you a picture. Some of us have seen, all of us have probably seen the cross out in our lobby that's above the fireplace. You've seen that. Well, if you were around when we moved into this building in 2008, we stuffed that cross. It's actually hollow. We stuffed that cross filled with little pieces of paper with names on it. And moms and dads and men and women and grandpas and grandpa, grandmas and students alike, we, we stuffed that thing filled with names of people we wanted to see come to Jesus, people who are far from God. And sometimes it's easy to look at that cross and remember putting names in that cross and think, I wonder whatever happened to any of those people, whatever happened to any of those prayers. And that was 13 years ago. Well, this morning I want to show you what happened with at least one of those prayers. This is a picture of Jason and Amy. Jason and Amy's names are in that cross. They were far from Jesus. Jason and Amy were far from God. You prayed for Jason and Amy if you were around 13 years ago. And Jason and Amy not only came to Jesus, but Jason's a pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee. Jason's a close friend. Jason's raising his children in the faith because God is still answering prayer. And so this morning, don't get discouraged. If there's life, there's hope. Pray for your kids. And finally, I want to encourage you with this. Cultivate your relationships with your church family and spiritual friends. Cultivate your relationships with your church family and spiritual friends. Recently, scientists from the University of North Carolina found that loneliness 
can vastly escalate a person's risk of heart disease, stroke, and even cancer. Of course, exceptions abound. We all know exceptions. But on the whole, lonely people live shorter lives and suffer more ill health. And so here are a few suggestions to take with you as you leave. Here's one suggestion. Develop an appreciation for the overall family of God. Develop this appreciation. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is moving forward and the gates of hell cannot stop it. So whatever it is that's tempted to pull your heart away from this appreciation of the global church or even the local expression of the church, remember this is the overall family of God. We need you. And by God's grace, you need the family of God. Secondly, another suggestion. Find a smaller group of people with whom you can regularly meet together. Now think of this. God doesn't expect you to be best friends with everybody. There's no way. Some say that you can't really know more than 100 people. So a way that we can cultivate this is to find a smaller group of people. In the book of Acts, we see that the church grew rapidly because it grew smaller, not larger. And by smaller, we mean that even though more and more people were coming to faith, more and more people were meeting in smaller groups and in homes and in the temple as they learned to do life with one another. This is why I'm so encouraged about our discipleship group kickoff on August the 21st. You can see all about it in the online bulletin on the app. What's why I'm excited about the connection wall back here to my right as you leave. You can see all these ways that you can get in groups either on Sunday or throughout the week. It's on our website. Get in smaller groups. Another suggestion, try to do life together and make it as fun and normal as possible. Try to do life together and make it as fun as normal as possible. For some reason, we think that like church life has to be like a different gear than life life, right? But what if the people that you did life with, your community, your group, what if you tried just to follow the regular rhythms of your life? This is why we try to do our best to encourage people to get in groups with people that they have a lot in common with. It's not exclusive, so if you see like, you know, ages of groups and stuff back there in the group's wall, it's not saying that you have to be 35 to 45 to be in this group. We're just trying to help people connect with the ways as much as possible that are natural, knowing there are exceptions. This is what our group does. Our group meets on Monday night. Sarah and I are not able to be part of a Sunday morning group. She comes to the 1115 service typically, and uh, we're, I work on Sundays, so I'm not able to like, be in a group on Sunday mornings. So Monday nights work great for us. Every Monday night, this is what we do. We go to a restaurant with our 10 people in our group, and sometimes, almost every week, somebody's out. So it's like six people, eight people. Occasionally, when the moon phases are right, all 10 people can be there. And we go to a restaurant, and we laugh, and we eat, and we make fun of one another, and we tell jokes, and we pray together, and we share our burdens together, and we talk about what Jesus is doing in our life. That's what we do. 
And that is so life-giving. And so your group doesn't necessarily have to be somebody on that wall. It might just be, you know what, we already do that. Let's do that weekly. Let's set that as a date. And watch what God can do through your life through them. Another suggestion, as trust is earned, share your story with them. As trust is earned, share your story. Friendships can only thrive where there's real authenticity. One of the best definitions of friendship is to know and be truly known. Which leads us to our last suggestion. As trust is earned, ask them to speak gospel truth into the blind spots of your story. One great way to kind of test the waters with a friend is just to ask them to pray for you. you got to be vulnerable, but not too vulnerable. You just say, hey, I've got this burden. My family's struggling, or I'm wrestling with this. Will you pray for me this week? And just watch what they do. If they pray for you and ask you about it later, then you know there's, there's somebody that's willing to invest in your life. These are all beautiful pictures of the family of God. Speaking of pictures, I want to conclude today with three pictures from the Olympics. Some of you watched the closing ceremonies this morning. We began with the Olympics, we'll end with the Olympics. This particular first picture is from an Alaska hometown of Lydia Jacoby. She was the high school student to first win gold in women's swimming in Tokyo. She dominated the women's 100-meter breaststroke, completing it in 1 minute 4.95 seconds. This particular picture was taken when her hometown in Alaska went wild. I love that. Another picture. This picture is of Team USA's Isaiah Jewett and Botswana's Nigel Amos. They were competing in the 800-meter semifinals when they got tangled up. And you would think they would have gotten angry with one another, right? Like, you knock me over. No, you knock me over. You knock me out, so and so forth. But instead, they held each other up and they walked to the finish. I love this last picture of the South African swimmer who was astonished that she had won gold. She had no idea that she'd won gold in the 200-meter breaststroke. Not only that, but she broke a world record. And I love this look on her face. But what I like even more is you've got one of her teammates coming over to congratulate her and then two other competitors coming over to congratulate her. And if I could wrap up my desire for our church in one picture... When it comes to relationships, it would be this. It would be when somebody else is winning and you're not, you're still rooting them on. When somebody you're close to is winning and you're not, you're still rooting them on. It's, it's hard. Life is hard for all of us. So imagine what would happen if, if we lived life like this. Cultivate your relationship with Jesus. Cultivate your relationship with your spouse. Cultivate your relationship with your children. Cultivate your relationship with your church family and spiritual friends. You say, Matt, why is this so important? It's so important because of this. God designed life to be a team sport, not a solo sport. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.